This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, it's Saturday. It's the Saturday show. Maybe you saw a couple days ago. These are clips that went around. The Oh, you, as you know, I should just set the table here. We give you the best of the week and the best of all time. The best of all time. We don't have to go back that far, kind of sadly, because I will feature an interview with Mark Oppenheimer about the relationship between the Jewish people and Ivy League schools. This one aired on Jan 30th of this year. And his series, which came out a little while beforehand, was called Gatekeepers. It's about Jews in the Ivy League. And why do we bring it up now? Maybe you saw that the presidents of MIT, which isn't an Ivy, but also Penn and Harvard, they were in front of Congress. They didn't do so well. I don't know. As of me talking, all three of those women have their job. Who knows, as of you listening, if that will be the case. Plus, we're going to bring a spiel. Actually, it was technically a beginning segment of the show that I did about the foster care system in Boston, covered very well in the Boston Globe and less well on MSNBC. Enjoy both of those. Gate Crashers is a podcast from Tablet Studios. It is hosted and reported by Mark Oppenheimer. And the the subject is anti-Semitism and quotas at the Ivy League institutions, quotas against Jews. Now, if you're interested in Ivy League institutions or Jews, which is probably a larger percentage of the GIST audience than, say, most general podcast audiences, you might care. But let's say you're like, all right, you know, I'm not going to say I'm not interested. It doesn't hook me. Here's what Gatecrashers does. It makes the case, and I think quite convincingly, that the quotas, that the efforts to keep out the Jews had such reverberations that just about everything we know know about the selectivity of selective colleges were born of the efforts to keep the Jews out. Mark Arpenheimer is also one of the hosts of the great Unorthodox podcasts. Joins me now, Mark. Welcome to The Gist. Thank you. So good to be here. So did you know that part before going in that the whole reason we have to go through this, I'll use the term, you know, the Michigas of of selectivity and SATs and testing and angst is because of the Jews? Well, first of all, you know, your usage of, of Michigas. I love it when you get Jewy with me, Michael. I know. It's so, it's, it's, <laughs> getting Jewy it's, with it, yes. it's so exciting. Um, <laughs> so it, I like it when you get down verbally. Um, the, no, when I went in to report this, 
uh, eight episode podcast, one episode on each of the Ivy League schools, really for the past century from 1920 to the present, because the quotas were born in 1919, 1920. We are literally a century into the uh, into the effort to keep Jews out of the Ivy League schools. I knew that we would get some good stories. I mean, I had always heard urban legends about, oh, you know, they here's how Yale or Princeton kept the numbers down to 10%. And, um, and of course, it's relevant today. And I knew it was relevant today because of this lawsuit against Harvard. Because if you read the brief, as no doubt everyone has, the plaintiff's brief in the Asian Americans lawsuit against Harvard College and also UNC is in that lawsuit as well. They say on page four or something, the same techniques used to screen out Jews are now being used to screen out Asians, um, ranking them, you know, scoring them down in subjective criteria like charisma or courage or things like that. Um, so I knew there was relevance, but I had no idea to answer your question. I had no idea until I really began researching it deeply that everything about college admissions was born in the 1920s of the effort to keep out Jews. Um, because to put it bluntly, even Ivy League schools were not particularly selective in, say, 1900 or 1910. Right. That's what I was. That's that was my insight. It wasn't just so much the mechanisms that they would preserve their status as elite institutions or their selectivity. It was actually they had to make a choice because Jews were wanting to apply and actually presenting themselves as strong candidates. They had to make a choice to actually be selective, which we may not understand when we think about the status of these institutions today. We think of these schools as places that since time immemorial have been have conceived of themselves as highly selective. They were not. Right. And they, they, and they birthed presidents and they were the oldest school. So why wouldn't they be? Right. Right. It makes perfect sense. And yet what they were, and with some exceptions, they have different histories. Penn and Brown were a little bit different. Cornell was a little bit They all have their own histories. But largely speaking, what they were initially were divinity schools. They were places you went to become a Protestant minister. And for obvious reasons, that was very closely allied with the ruling class in America in the 1700s and 1800s. Then in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they really morphed into being finishing schools. You would send your, your son to Columbia because you were a wealthy New York merchant family and you wanted him to meet a nice girl from Barnard and you wanted them to make a good marriage. So they became finishing schools. So they were not particularly intellectual places. They were not places at the cutting edge of science or the humanities. Um, they were places where you went to row a little bit, do some acapella singing, uh, pal about with some other elite kids, meet people to go to Newport with in the summer and find a good girl to marry. And so there was no particular reason that an ambitious immigrant kid of Jewish or Italian or Irish stock coming out of a good public high school in Boston, New York, wanted to go to Columbia or Harvard in the year 1890. Um, You would either go into a some sort of apprenticeship to become a professional. You would take the Abe Lincoln route into being a lawyer or you'd start a business. You'd become a merchant. But there was no reason to go, um, you know, drink martinis and sing a cappella at Columbia. Then in the early 1900s, um, these schools became a little bit more rigorous. They they started getting some very good professors. And in New York City in particular, a lot of the Jewish boys coming out of Bronx Science and Stuyvesant, places like that, these elite public high schools, said, you know what? Instead of going to City College or NYU, I'm going to try to go to Columbia because also Columbia was not particularly expensive. These schools were all much cheaper. So mm-hmm. if you could scrape together a few bucks, you could go to a slightly more socially prestigious place. And so all of a sudden from about 1900 to 1920, Columbia went from being negligibly Jewish to being 30 or 40 percent Jewish almost overnight. And yes, to, to, to your point, they basically had to say, wait a second, we can't keep being an open admission school or they're going to be 
too many Jews here. So we will be selective. We will artificially restrict the number of people we admit as a pretext for keeping out Jews. And that is where college selectivity was born. Yeah. And and that phrase you just used, they were open admission. They weren't just... Pretty much. Yeah. They weren't just unselective. If you wanted to go, you could go, but who would want to go? It was the rich yeah. people who... Yeah. The, right. The freshman, the size of the freshman classes varied wildly from year to year because some years 700 people wanted to go and some years 843 people wanted to go. So they were very different kinds of places until the Jews came along. And then they had to conceive of themselves like, okay, what are we doing here? We're not really divinity schools anymore. Um, if we're going to try to preserve our status as elite Protestant schools, we have to start screening out these ambitious immigrant kids who want to come. And so they had to create admissions procedures that were much more kind of rigorous and and, and they were asking for letters of reference and transcripts and interviews and all these things. And, and a lot of it was to figure out who's Jewish and who's not. So there is it is true that uh, there was this there was the, the impetus to keep out Jews because it would change. And uh, the guardians of these colleges saw, uh, saw it as sullying the reputation of the colleges. But it's also true. And your series points this out, that there was something to the the image of the really smart Jewish kid who is going to complete a four-year education in three years and be a grind and just take a, a whole lot of classes to save money and to get into the workplace and not contribute to the atmosphere on campus. And so if we deride the drinking clubs and the rowing and and the whiff and poo whiff and poos or whatever, yeah, they're worthy of derision. And yet at the same time, there is something about a college that is social. And you do point out that many of the Jews, and we're talking about in the early part of uh, yeah. of this experiment, uh, if you want to call it that, that was antithetical to the what we ideally think of as a residential college. Absolutely. Um, which was, you know, founded on the Oxford and Cambridge model, which were highly social places. Um, Absolutely. If what you want is a school filled, if it's 1920 or 25 or 1930, and you're a trustee of Columbia University, and you want your school to be a place where students come to get gentlemen C's, do a little bit of homework, but also support the football team, uh, play intramural sports, gear up for the senior prom, um, you know, put on musical reviews, uh, do some recreational fencing, and, and, you know, date Barnard girls, having a school that's 40% Jewish, drawing heavily from the ranks of first generation, uh, you know, post-immigration Jewish boys from downtown New York, Lower East Side and Brooklyn is not good for that school you're trying to create because those boys were largely commuter students and they wanted to leave campus after class and go home and do their homework so that they would be able to break into the middle class of America and realize what they saw as the American dream. So absolutely. I mean, there's an aspect of this that is not anti-Semitism in a in the sense in which we think of it today. It's not necessarily that people saw Jews as worse or inferior or malevolently superior, uh, filled with cunning and shrewdness, simply that by and large, the population of Jews they were looking at was not interested in the culture of Columbia as the trustees saw it. And of course, there are numerous exceptions, but these are still the battles we fight today. I mean, there's a reason that Harvard doesn't want its school to become 60 or 70 percent Asian and why this has worked its way up to the Supreme Court. Part of it is, of course, is because they want to leave room for historically underrepresented groups um, to have more of a presence on campus. But it's also because 
the the image of these schools as places for well-roundedness rather than just intellectual achievement has won out. No school wants to be thought of, right. except, I don't know, University of Chicago, maybe, MIT. No school wants to be thought of as a place where kids come and just do all the homework. They all want to tell you, but also you're in all these, you're in French club and yearbook and all this other dumb stuff. And frankly, you know, I mean, I went to Yale because I was, you know, a mediocre intellect with lots of extracurricular brio. And it's a little embarrassing looking back. I mean, how how little I got out of the world famous teachers and professors I could have really learned from. Yeah. Your podcast made me think about the concepts of meritocracy and whiteness. And both of those came into uh, came under interrogation in the podcast and in my mind. But, you know, meritocracy and whiteness are subjects. They're both subtexts and at times texts of the podcast. Do you think it seems like whiteness, there's a greater embrace on let's really grapple with this and meritocracy. It seems like there's uh, these days there's an allergy to acknowledging it. How do whiteness and meritocracy get implicated by the lesson of the Jews in the Ivy Leagues? Yeah, I mean, one of the things to understand is, of course, in the 1920s, uh, nobody saw the Jews as white in the way we think of white people as a dominant ruling class. And that's a lesson we should always bear in mind today when a lot of Jews, in especially in sort of left-wing and progressive circles, are perceived to be um, kind of not only white, but sometimes the whitest of the white because it's seen, they're seen as white and rich and privileged. And I think we would all talk about that with a little more sophistication and humility and compassion if we understood how historically new and contingent that perception of Jews is. Um, remember that geographical diversity as a as a virtuous construct was born of the desire to keep Jews out. The reason schools like Columbia and Harvard began sending admission officers to the Mountain West, to Montana and Idaho and Washington State, um, looking for students from all 48 states in the 1920s and 30s was because they figured correctly that students from those states would be Gentiles. Would be, it was a way to keep the number of urban students, which meant Jews, down. And that was in, you know, in the lifetime of some of our parents. Um, so that's really, really important um, to remember. And, you know, in terms of meritocracy, one of the points that I want to make is these schools have never been purely about finding the smartest, however you want to construe merit. They've never been about finding the smartest or the most industrious or the most, quote, deserving. They've always been about constructing a particular image of what the social organism of the campus looks like. Who is knocking up against whom? Who is who is, you know, getting to know whom? So you you want a certain number of Gentiles and then you allow a certain number of Jews and then at a certain point you decide you want it to be half women and now these schools think of themselves as wanting to be about 10% international, but not more. I mean if you were just saying who are the smartest people we can get and it can be anyone from the whole world, these schools might they might be 35% Chinese. We don't know. Right. Um, they might be 20% Singaporean or 15% South Asian. We don't know, but that's not what they want. They want 10% international, not 20%. So they've never been meritocracies in the sense in which they like to think of themselves. I wish there were some American schools that were. What, what I came away from producing Gatecrashers uh, thinking was that the lesson of this podcast, Gatecrashers, was that we need more different kinds of schools. It's I think it's fine for there to be some hoity-toity, snooty society schools that are looking to generate, you know, well-rounded people who can, you know, fence and do schoolwork and put on musical reviews. And some of them might be Jews and some Gentiles and who cares. But 
Society should also have places for people who want to go be really serious students without the extracurricular frippery. And I'm concerned that we don't. Yeah. And to bring it to uh, a theme of the podcast, the exclusion, the lawsuits about excluding Asians, it is very similar to what the colleges were doing with the Jews because the uh, current Asian students are not getting in uh, in the numbers that their, uh, for instance, test scores would indicate, that the Asian students are, be, are they, they use vague personality criteria to discriminate against them. But also in this way, and this is what su- surprised me, that it's not subtle, that if you look at it and you talk about what was revealed in court and how uh, different professors, Asian professors who've looked at this will point out, there are ways that the colleges discriminate. I think what we've always heard is, well, there's a way to do it, but they don't, it's really hard to prove. No, you came out, you reported a couple of instances where it's not hard to prove at all. Like they're like colleges just reaching out to a lower threshold of white student in terms of SAT score than Asian student in terms of encouraging them to apply to their college. Mm-hmm. And yes, and when they go to the West, when they go to Idaho, for example, we now know they aren't just looking for Idahoans, they're looking for white Idahoans. In other words, if what you wanted was geographical diversity, you should be happy to get an Asian or a black student from Boise because they grew up in Boise. They have a Western perspective and some, they know what it's like to not be from an elite East Coast media center. But actually the admissions office thinks of the kind of Western frontier boy or girl they want as being a white Western frontier boy or girl, not an Asian American student whose parent, you know, is an immigrant PhD who teaches at the university in Boise. That's not what they want. They specifically think of Westerners as white people. And so they don't reach out when they do that admissions outreach. They actually don't reach out to Asian students in those places. So it's, it's very bigoted, very discriminatory all the way up and down. And look, there are people who say, well, yeah, that's that's what we have to do because we don't want these schools to be, um, you know, 50% Asian American. We don't want them to look like UC Berkeley. We want them to look more like America, which is, you know, under 10% uh, East Asian American and a few percent South Asian American and so forth and 12 or 13% black. And they, you know, if that's what they want and therefore they are going to construct every class to look like that, which they do, at least be honest about it. I mean, my feeling about all of this has been all of these things may be defensible. What's indefensible is the dishonesty and and the dissembling. And universities have tax exempt status and are nonprofit and are granted that because they are seen as places where that promote unfettered truth. That's how they're serving society as as these these wellsprings of truth, of truthfulness, (laughs) not truthiness, but truthfulness. And yet when it comes to admissions processes, they just lie all the time. Yeah. So this isn't about the Jewish question or the Asian question, but do you think, based on that, their status, the Ivy League status as the utmost brands in not just education, but basically the focus of attention of middle to upper class uh, American families will ever wane? It's not much, right? There's a kind of hopefulness, especially some of my friends on the right have this hopefulness that, you know, either Peter Thiel will give smart high school seniors a hundred grand to, you know, uh, to do a startup or they'll go, you know, join the army or they'll, 
you know, uh, or, or the University like, of Austin will yeah, become a they'll thing. Go to, yeah. They'll go to University of Austin or some other interesting, weird virtual startup. And by the way, I have a lot of feelings about what a missed opportunity a place like the University of Austin is, because we do need some schools, you know, shaking up the ecosystem, but they shouldn't be virtual schools because virtual learning is bad and dumb and depressing. And they shouldn't offer masters in leadership, which is a non-field. I mean, they should be really old school retro places with books and blackboards and places where people get together and sit around cross-legged and talk. And they, they shouldn't be futuristic. They should be kind of backward looking, I think, because this they should be done on the cheap and they should be really accessible and you shouldn't need to kind of crack some weird futuristic Peter Thiel Silicon Valley code for them. Um, what I would love to see, the most realistic better option is if states really resumed fully funding their state school. So if you look at the University of California in 1950, when it was like $10 per credit hour, and it was basically free, that was one of the greatest engines of social mobility in history. I mean, University of Connecticut, where I live, University of California, University of Arkansas, these state legislatures should figure out how much they need to tax their citizenry to make these schools free. So that if you're a smart high schooler, even if Yale throws a lot of financial aid at you and you can go for 10,000 a year, if you can go to UConn for a dollar a year, a lot of people will. And that would be such a remarkable statement. What is one extraordinary way to transfer wealth and social mobility to have a really European style free good for your education system. And we had one. The state schools were largely free in the post-war era, and they've become increasingly expensive because the schools have said, we need squash courts and fancy dorms and, and the arms race, and we've, we don't want to tax ourselves for them anymore. So that's what we could get back to. Yeah. And the sign of progress won't be that the Asian students who've sued Harvard win. The sign of progress will be that they say, oh, well, who needs Harvard? And remember, in 1910, when, when the story of Gatecrashers starts, uh, America was 110 million people. We are now l exactly three times that size. We're about 330 million. So there should be at least three times as many schools that we see as kind of elite type places. And we have not, our sense, our, our, our capaciousness, our sense of what a great place to get an education is, has not grown as the size of the country has grown. Mark Oppenheimer is the reporter and producer behind the podcasts, Gate Crashers, which we've been talking about, and Unorthodox. Both are from Tablet. Mark, thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. A story on MSNBC caught my eye. Not just a story, a terribly written story, but also a quite popular story. Second most popular yesterday, fallen to third most popular today. Our story in question is titled, Each Child Left Behind. The racism in this blue state can be illustrated with one infuriating statistic. Get it? Each child left behind. A play on no child left behind, but in our dystopian present, there is not a single child that's not being left behind. This does raise the philosophical question. If no child advances and they're all being left behind, can any child be said to be left behind? It doesn't matter. I just extended more thought on that throwaway doom fodder than anyone involved in its crafting. But what about the one infuriating statistic? I want to be infuriated by racism. Tell me the statistic. Well, there it is in the subhead of the article. Quote, Latinos in Massachusetts face the greatest risk of winding up in foster care in Massachusetts than they do in any other state. Latinos in Massachusetts face the greatest risk of winding up in foster care in Massachusetts than they do in any other state. 
as opposed to Latinos in Massachusetts ending up in foster care in Wisconsin, Oregon? Maybe Guam. That would be racist. It would be terribly inconvenient, at least. No, that is not what the article means. It means that if you're a Latino kid in Massachusetts, you have more of a chance of winding up in foster care than if you're a Latino kid in Wisconsin, Oregon, or anywhere else. But is that racist? Massachusetts is a high-tax state. It has much better, more expansive government services than most every other state. So a child there is much less likely to fall through the cracks. And I, having listened to this Segment on WBUR's On Point, a Massachusetts radio show, by the way, thought the problem was lack of foster care. The U.S. foster care system is broken. The number of licensed foster homes dropped last year in more than half of states. But the report on MSNBC is telling me the problem is too much foster care, specifically for Latinos in Massachusetts. I get it. If you get into the foster care system, it often has negative outcomes, though they haven't done great studies about similarly situated or let us call them deserving kids who are not put in foster care. You know, if foster care hurt the kind of kids who needed foster care more than not being in foster care, they should just do away with foster care, and that's not a good idea. Anyway, I didn't understand much of this, so I read on, encountering sentences like the following. Across the country, the bigger issue in the foster care system is the overrepresentation of black children, who are 22% of the U.S. foster child population, despite representing only 14% of the total child population. The Children's Defense Fund notes that the American Indian slash Alaska Native children are also, quote, dramatically overrepresented, even though they represent just 1% of the overall child population, they represent 2% of the foster care population. But wouldn't the relative statistic not just be the overall percentage of these populations? Wouldn't it be the things like economic or social indicators? Let's look at income. Let's look at how many two-family homes? Let's look at abuse in the homes or arrest in the homes. Foster care is the state stepping in to offer a safety net for children that don't have enough resources. Now, the article goes on to note that the state's, Massachusetts state's, under 17-year-old population is 20%, but the foster care population is 34%. Okay, but the article also says The Latino poverty rate in Massachusetts, 19.9%, is twice the state's overall poverty rate. So in one way, Latinos are overrepresented in foster care, but compared to poverty, they're, if anything, underrepresented. Of course, poverty isn't abuse. It doesn't mean abuse. But the foster care system is for children whose parents can't provide for them, who lack resources and lacking economic resources is a contributing factor. Also, if you're drug addicted or totally absent as a parent, that would result and show up as extreme poverty. MSNBC thinks the opposite, writing, some of the people who believe themselves to be seeing signs of neglect or abuse are seeing signs of poverty. A simpler way to express this is poverty is often mistaken for abuse. But I'm not here to rhetorically nitpick. I have a fundamental complaint about the meaning that the MSNBC story is trying to convey. Because this entire piece, which I truly had a tough time understanding on first read, is simply a rewrite of a Boston Globe article, in fact, an editorial and an article, but rewriting it through an anti-racist lens, an often incomprehensibly anti-racist lens. The Globe's piece is actually good. I understand it immediately, and it convinced me this is a problem. 
Headline, Latino disproportionality in DCF, that's Department of Children and Families, points to need for language access, cultural competency. Subhead, in Massachusetts, Latino children are more overrepresentative in foster care than in any other state. That's a little bit of an improvement on Latinos in Massachusetts face the greatest risk of winding up in foster care in Massachusetts. The Globe article begins with a really compelling anecdote about a woman who lost her kids, had a DCF worker who couldn't speak Spanish. She lost her job attending all these DCF sessions. She eventually got her kids back. It seems like just a Kafka-esque nightmare. It's actually really penetrable journalism. It meets the reader who might not be a thousand percent read in on all the latest ideology. MSNBC, on the other hand, writes, people pushing for DEI aren't doing so just to be cool. Not just to be cool, though it is pretty trendy. Here is why DEI is a solve for this problem, according to MSNBC. More than a story about the problems in one state's child protective agency, the Globe story is a reminder of the necessity of diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI policies, the same policies that have been maligned as woke by conservatives touting the myth of color blindness. All right. Well, here's a real-world solution that the real reporters of the Boston Globe note. Quote, It might be worth investigating new screening methods. Nassau County, New York, for example, pioneered a system that is spread to other jurisdictions where child removal decisions are made by a committee of child welfare workers who do not know the child's race. And this, not knowing race i.e. colorblindness, has actually improved the outcomes and why it is being touted by the Globe as a model for other places to try. MSNBC has six mentions of the need for DEI programs. They have no mentions of the fact that, according to the Globe article, they rewrite, quote, DCF requires cultural humility and sensitivity courses for all social workers, and quote the chief of staff at DCF saying, issues of identity and diversity are central to children's welfare, and it's deeply grounded in our work. See, he knows DEI is cool, but is it effective? Not in this case, not like they're doing it. So what should they do? I don't know, identity, diversity? How about language. The Globe mentions several times the necessity for DCF workers to speak Spanish when dealing with Spanish people. Of course. It speaks about the need for those making foster care decisions to have cultural competency, not a buzzword. They define it and they give examples so that we understand what they mean. For instance, an agent with more of an understanding of Latino culture might interpret the use of extended family members or other members of the community to watch children, not as some patchwork suboptimal solution, but as reflecting the normal comfort level Latino families have with those arrangements. The situation in Massachusetts seems like a real problem. Foster care affects Latinos in Massachusetts acutely. I understand that from reading the story, the Boston Globe story. It's something close to a tragedy. Something less than a tragedy, but more than a mere annoyance on a communicative and journalistic level is the MSNBC rewrite of the Boston Globe's work infuriating and racist in the headline, slamming conservatives in an article about Massachusetts, deploying buzzwords and defaulting to polarizing rhetoric because you just can't help it, and I guess because it drives traffic. Would a conservative, an actual conservative, not some imagined MSNBC cartoon conservative, oppose reforming the child welfare system in Massachusetts? If they were to read this line in the Globe, quote, 
a more culturally sensitive child mistreatment reporting system and more resources for people in poverty would help stem the flow of Latino children into the child welfare system, say child advocates and activists from the Latino community, when a conservative say, let's try that. It sounds less wasteful and more efficient and actually targeting the problem. Obviously, obviously, obviously a government agency has to understand its clients. What kind of idiot or cartoon conservative would say that literally not understanding the language the clientele speaks is good governance or even acceptable? I mean, if the language you use can't be understood by the audience, you will never be able to get to an actual solution. Put that in a headline, MSNBC. Corey Wara produces The Gist, Joel Patterson's the senior producer, and we'll talk to you on Monday.